Well, thanks for being at Grace. Uh, we appreciate uh, that you're here, and we're excited to be continuing in our series. And I'd also like to welcome Paulding. We're glad that they're joining us as well. And we're continuing in the series, What God has, Reveals About Himself. And just before we jump in that, I would just like to tell you about some of the exciting things happening at Grace just this week. Uh, the uh, high school floor was poured and the next thing will be the, the courts and then the middle school to go right out that, that garage door on the south side and, and that'll take care of that part. And we, we've got a lot of stuff going on. I know the youth are really excited about that. And also, speaking of youth ministry, next weekend is Kalahari. So if you are a parent of a teen or a teenager, you wanna make sure you get signed up for that because uh, that's like this maybe kind of last chance for doing that, so jump on that. Uh, we expect to have about 1,500 people there, and it's just a super exciting thing. Uh, Zach runs that for us, and he's got a lot of help from uh, Luke and Michael and Jeff, Walter, all joining in, and, and all of our uh, youth staff that make that happen, just exciting things. I got to tell you, I love Grace. Uh, it's just a great church family. I, I love I love coming in here and seeing just the smile, the enthusiasm, the excitement about what's happening here, the changed lives, and, and everybody kind of rolling up their sleeves and jumping in to make that happen and, and serve. It's just a huge blessing to me, just a great place to be. Well, what God reveals about himself, first off, we started with God is, and we talked about the doctrine of the Trinity. And then we said God makes, and we talked about the doctrine of creation, and today we're talking about God speaks, and we're talking about the doctrine of revelation. And as we do that, I basically just want to answer three simple questions as, as I often do, and that is, why has God spoken? Um, how can we be sure of what he said, and what does that mean to us? So those three questions... We'll go over. We've already kind of partially answered the first one. Why has God spoken? Well, he's done that to reveal himself. And he really did that in two ways, in a, in a general kind of a way and a specific way. And last week we were talking about the general way that God has revealed himself to us, and that is through creation. And, and so we understand that. But more specifically, he's revealed himself in two ways through the coming of his son, Jesus Christ, and through his word. Now, the coming of his son, we know that Jesus took the Bible seriously, and that's why we take the Bible seriously. For Jesus, it was the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet, and he took that as God's word, took that very seriously, and we do the exact same thing. So we would say, you know, if God created he would reveal himself, and that's exactly what happened. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So what do we believe about the Bible? Well, the Bible tells us that it's God's word. The Bible, Scripture, is God speaking to us. God's word to us. God's speaking to us as we read it. That's why it's so important. And we believe, of course, the Bible is our highest authority by which all other authorities are tested. 
And we'll remember that the Bible is authored by, uh, by men who were prompted or led or influenced by the Holy Spirit. And that's explained to us in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. It says, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So we have this amazing, what we call the, the Bible is actually a collection of books written by, in three languages, by 40 authors over 1,600 years, that all these books have one theme in them, and that's God's plan to redeem sinful mankind. And so it's all united in that way. So if that's, if that's why God has spoke, then the next question is, how can we be sure of what he said? Well, if it's God doing the speaking, and he's created us as rational people, and he's revealed himself specifically through his word, the first thing is we would expect that God would somehow preserve his word, that God would make it always available, that God wouldn't let it become obscure or forgotten or lost, and God has preserved his word. We, we've talked recently that the Bible is the best-selling book of the world and always has been since they've been keeping track of best-selling books. It's not in a corner. It's, it's the most popular book in the world by sales. And so we talk a lot about this stuff. I kind of wanted to approach it a little bit different way this morning. I mean, we, we, we prove God's word. We, we talk about its authenticity, its accuracy. We talk about how it's different from all other religious texts and that it has uh, fulfilled prophecy, predictive prophecy, glaringly absent in all other religious texts. But in the Bible, we not only have prophecy, we have fulfilled prophecy recorded for us. We talk about the accuracy of the names, places, and politics that are mentioned, for example, in the New Testament. We have all these ways, but, but one of the ways that we know that, that we can have confidence in its accuracy is that it truly reflects what God said, especially when we refer to the New Testament, is not just because God would preserve it, God has preserved it, and we can see that through investigation. We can see that by looking at the facts. We can prove that to other people. And, and the main reason is because of the, the date who and when wrote the New Testament as influenced by God. And, and maybe you'll remember, um, you know, sometimes I have used the rose counting for a thousand years in our auditorium and how close it is to the original. And we compared the Bible to other ancient literature of the time that we know of, uh, which was Aristotle's uh, Organon and Julius Caesar's Galaic Wars and Homer's Iliad. And all those things written about the same time period. And there's really no comparison that we have so much literally thousand times more confidence in the accuracy of the Bible than those works because they're so close. From the time of those authors to the time of the first earliest copies that we have, it's over a thousand years for all those. 
But for the Bible, we have copies with, we have fragments of copies within a hundred years. We have entire copies within 200 years. It, it's a complete uh, proof archaeologically that we know the Bible is accurate. And the worn out argument that, that can be proven to be false now that, well, we don't really know what the New Testament really said because it's been handed down and translated so many times. That's just not true. Because with modern archaeology, we skip almost 2,000 years and we go back and we read the Greek and we don't even need any translations if you want to take the time to learn Greek. And what we find in those fragments from, with from the first and second centuries are identical to what we have in our Bible today. Do we understand that principle basically? You got that? You know, don't make me get the cart and start wheeling papers around, you know, like how many of you remember me doing that? If you want to be reminded of that, or maybe you weren't around for that, if you go back to God Questions Part 4 this last year, around Easter time, uh, we, we talked about that in more detail. I, I want to kind of do something different, but that's Ohio, uh, ohiograce.com, God Questions Part 4, if you want to see that. All the New Testament books were written within the lifetimes of people who knew Jesus. They were all written in the first century. And so, and we know that they're accurate to what was written because we have the fragments and the, the books and the ancient literature to prove that. Now, there's a lot of other ways that I haven't mentioned. And sometimes just talking about a topic, you're just looking, well, what are some other arguments that I haven't mentioned lately? One is just significant dates. Understanding significant dates and what's happening in history will also prove early authorship of the New Testament. I'll give you an example of that. A friend of mine, Mike Solander, uh, we, we kind of read similar stuff sometime, and he started, I think it's all on tape, but it's the book of the Roman Empire. And I don't know, it's like 80 hours on tape or something. He's been telling me, about, he's going through this, Kevin, I think you'd like it. And, and, and then I asked him, he was telling me about this about a week ago, and I said, well, have you got to 70 AD yet? And he said, no, I haven't got there yet, although he has since. And because to me, that's such a significant date. You just take a date like that, 70 AD, not mentioned in the Bible, but very significant to Bible things because something huge happened in 70 AD, right? Specifically, August of 70 AD. And some of you know what that is, right? That's when Rome took, laid siege to Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. See what, and that was the first of the Jewish wars in their rebellion against Rome. So what happened about that time before 70 AD, a few years leading up to that, is the Israelites started rebelling against Rome. They started uh, killing soldiers and uh, killing Roman sympathizers, and it got so bad that word got back to Rome, and they actually sent uh, a Roman general in to quell the rebellion, and that was Vespasian. And so he comes in, he marches down through Israel, conquering as he goes. As he does that, a lot of the Jewish fighters go into Jerusalem. And as he conquers his way down, he, and he kind of avoids the stronghold of Jerusalem, as he's doing that, 
those fighters that congregated in Jerusalem, they overthrow the Roman garrison there inside the walls of Jerusalem, and they kill all the soldiers. They take the weapons, and, and they have the town. And not only that, they also took Masada. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of Masada, but it's just on this rock outcropping. I think we may have one up there, but, you know, very cool, very difficult for, to get there. They take that, which is something, another thing that Herod the Great built, and so they control that where Herod the Great had stored a bunch of weapons and stuff. So then there's are two strongholds. Well, Vespasian gets called, recalled back to Rome, and he ends up becoming Caesar. His son Titus takes over and lays siege to Jerusalem. And at first it's kind of easy. They, get, they penetrate. There's actually, at that time, they built three walls around Jerusalem. They get through the first wall, the second wall, but it's just taking months and months. And then they get to the third wall, and they really get bogged down. And they just can't quite get in. In the meantime... Jerusalem is surrounded, and when you lay siege, you're kind of starving people out, and some people are trying to get out of the city. There's actually a lot of infighting within the, the Jewish people inside Jerusalem. It's just a bad time. People are trying to get out of there. The Romans start catching everybody that tried to get out, and they start publicly crucifying them all around the walls of the city. As a matter of fact, in one day, Josephus tells us, and he was there, tells us that 500 people in one day were crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. But finally, they get in. They get in and they overtake Jerusalem. They, they slaughter all the fighters and everybody's either killed or taken into slavery. And it's the fall of Jerusalem. And then they burn the temple. And they not only burn the temple, but they because they see the temple as sort of the epicenter of all the problems that they have in Israel. So they start dismantling the temple stone by stone, and they just completely obliterate all trace of the temple because they're so mad about what's happened. Now, here's why this is significant, because I just took you on a rabbit trail there. Here's why. Because when the temple was destroyed, that was huge. For all Jewish people in the world and for Christians. Why? Because in 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, Judaism could no longer be practiced in the way the Old Testament was telling them to practice Judaism. Couldn't be done anymore. Couldn't make a sacrifice anymore. Couldn't do any of that anymore. All done. It was over. Judaism, as they knew it, ended because there was no sacrifice for sin. Because it had to be done at the temple. And not only that, that was huge for Christians too. Because at this time, and this again, this is only 37 years after the crucifixion of Christ. Huge for Christians because most of them were former Jews. They, they were Jewish people who became Christians. And so this, this is huge. But now here's the deal. Here's kind of where I was going with that. This happened 37 years after the crucifixion of Christ, and it is not mentioned in the New Testament. And the question is, why? This is huge. Huge for religion, huge for Judaism, huge for Christianity, not mentioned. Why? Well, the reason is because the New Testament, all of it with a possible exception of Revelation, had already been written by 70 AD. That's why... Because if it hadn't been written yet, they would have mentioned it. Because why? Because it makes their point. Remember, Jesus said, this temple is going to be destroyed. If you were writing after that, 
after it was destroyed, you'd say, hey, remember Jesus said the temple was going to be destroyed? That's destroyed. He was right. Or not only that, Jesus said, we know the New Testament teaches Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice. Could you imagine the argument you could make to Jewish people? Hey, Jesus said he was once and all. He was the Lamb of God, the once and all sacrifice. And by the way, there's no other sacrifice anymore. He's it. But you don't have any statements like that. Christian, Christian writers would have wanted to say that to people. Not mentioned. Why? That's evidence that those books, again, possible exception of Revelation, were all written by A.D. 70. So it's just knowing history. Because what people want to make us think about the Bible is actually scientifically and archaeologically false. And that is that, well, we don't really know that, you know, then they use the kind of myth. Well, some of the things about Jesus, he was a great moral teacher, people say, but didn't do these miracles, didn't do some of this stuff. And that was just, Jesus grew into legend over time. The problem with that theory is there was no time for that because the New Testament was almost all written before 70 AD, which was within 37 years of Christ's death, within the lifetime of the people who lived with Jesus. But that doesn't keep people from trying. It, that, that's how, even today, we just start hearing People, just a few years ago, people started saying the Holocaust never happened. Which is kind of nuts, because you can go visit the concentration camps. You can speak to Holocaust survivors, but people say, have you ever heard that? People say the Holocaust never existed. Yeah, they say, and they're going to say that more and more. And they're going to say it's a myth, it, it's a legend. It, that's, that's what they're going to go there. It didn't really happen. Well, for them to say that... Right now, that holds no water. We still have eyewitnesses. I've been to the Holocaust Museum in Israel. We know that it happened. We can prove it. But over time, and it's been 70 years, roughly, since the Holocaust. Get another 30, 40 years, and more and more people will say, no, that didn't really happen. Why? Because the eyewitnesses will have all died by then. And after the eyewitnesses pass away, it's only then that myth and legend can come to be. Does that make sense? That didn't happen in the New Testament because the New Testament was written within the lifetime of the people who knew and hung out and were taught by Jesus personally. That's what we're saying. That's how that can't be. The New Testament books are proven reliable because when they were written and who wrote them. Well, how do we, when we're talking to other people, if we're convinced, you know, how do we convince other people? Well, we use this archaeological evidence and if people have an open mind, it's a slam dunk that we know the Bible is authentic to what was written in the first century. There's no question about that. It all jives with other history. It's amazing how all the politics and the names, you know, all, all are correct according to the time. But sometimes another way of approaching this is when people start kind of doubting Scripture. 
And sometimes we could just say, well, we take Scripture seriously because Jesus took Scripture seriously. And, uh, and sometimes when we're talking to non-believers and they start bringing up objections in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, we need to figure out which is the more compelling statement for the people that we're talking to. We can say this, like we were talking about last week, well, I believe in creation because the Bible said so. Or we can say, I believe in creation because Jesus believed in creation. And sometimes we need to just figure out, because both of those things are true. Because Jesus spoke to some of those things that are difficult in the Old Testament, really most of them. Jesus, he referred to creation. Jesus referred to Noah and the flood. Jesus referred to Jonah. All these things that people hotly debate, sometimes just telling, well, that's, well, Jesus believed it. So we believe it. But whichever argument kind of carries the most weight. And then some people say, well, it sounds a little bit kind of like circular reasoning. I mean, you're pointing to the Bible and then you're using Jesus. And, but then the Bible saying Jesus, who he was, and then you're using Jesus, say the Bible's okay. I understand that, but it's really not circular reasoning. And here's why. In order to view it as circular reasoning, you have to view the Bible as if it was written by one human author. But it's, it's not. It was written by 40 authors. And let's just get it down to the New Testament. You have, when you start realizing that the, the Bible is a collection of books that were inspired by God in order for God to reveal himself, it takes that circular reasoning article away. Now listen to some. I want to make a statement. Christians don't believe... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because they're in the Bible. Christians believe Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are in the Bible because they're credible and reliable and truthful. You see the difference there? When we're talking to people, we need to realize that there's a distinguishing mark here. So... The Bible doesn't just get labeled in a hump. It's a collection of books, and God intended it to be that way. So it's not that, well, anything these guys said, we just automatically blindly believe it because it's in the Bible. No, it's a little more than that. It's we believe these guys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James, Paul, because they're, they're in the Bible because they're reliable. We don't believe them because they're in the Bible. We believe they're all correct and reliable, and therefore they are in the Bible. Did you kind of understand that difference? All right, three of you understand that. Great. That's more than I thought would, so. So if God revealed himself, we'd expect him to preserve his word. And he has, and he's even done it in a way that we can prove that's preserved for us. So, but the main thing I kind of want to hit today is, well, what, what does that mean to us? God has spoken. God speaks. That means God, the God of the universe, speaks to us. He has spoken to us through his word. That's why it's so important. The God of the universe is telling us something through his 
preserved word, the books of the Bible. Now, our country was founded on Christian principles, and, and America kind of retains sort of a spirituality. But what's happened is the spirituality that we see in our culture has become more and more separated from the truth of the Bible. So people, they say, and you, I, I, don't, I hear this all the time, well, I'm a spiritual person, but, but I don't do church, and you know, I don't know about the Bible. You know, it's spirituality now has come to a higher level than Scripture. It's a spirituality, but it's completely separated from the doctrine of the Bible who informs us, which informs us about God. And it's because of that, in our culture, you hear some kind of crazy stuff. You know, a few weeks ago, I, I mentioned funerals. Another thing that you hear at funerals is something like, well, you know, Aunt Mary died, and now she's an angel looking over us. Okay, that is not what the Bible's teaching. I don't, I don't know where that theology came from. Maybe it's a wonderful life. I don't know. Ring a bell. I don't know where that's coming from exactly, but that's not right. But you hear people saying stuff like that all the time. Why? Because their spirituality is completely disconnected from the truth of the Bible. We can't do that. The Bible's what informs us of God, and we need to know it. When we finally come to the point where we grab on to the main message of Scripture that we are all sinfully flawed. We've rebelled against God. And, and when we come to understand the truth that, that God allowed His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to enter humanity and ultimately be put to death for our sins... So through faith or belief, we can trade our sinfulness for Christ's righteousness, the great exchange. When we come to know that, that's when we become a believer. When we put our faith in what Christ has done for us, what we're, what we're being offered, and, and we take God up on what he's offering us, we become a believer. But, but after that happens, we need to grow. Salvation has never been meant to be like you understand that truth and then you get an ultraviolet stamp on your hand. And then someday you go to heaven and you're at the gates of heaven and Peter's like, oh, what? let me check your hand. And oh, wow. Peter's like, never saw that coming. I didn't think you would, but I've been watching you. And wow, that's a surprise. Hey, you're a believer. Come on in. You know, that's not the way it works. God has saved us to transform our lives. But we need to understand that when we become a believer, we're like infants, the Bible's telling us, that need to grow in our Christianity. And how do we do that? We do that through the Bible. Well, how do we know that we need growth? Well, we know we need growth when we are unstable. When we're not consistent in our Christian life. We know we need to grow when, when we're doing something major in our life and we're saying things like this. 
when people do this, when people say, well, I know what the Bible says, but I'm in a different situation. I know what the Bible says, but you don't know my wife. I, I know what the Bible says, but, and then they completely discount God's word. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're not truly a Christian. But it means you at least need to grow. You know, being unstable is, is when we think we got the Christian life down and we're feeling pretty good about it and we're feeling even close to God. And in the next minute, we're screaming at our kids or our spouse. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're not a Christian. It means you need to grow up as a believer. It, it's when we live our lives so self-centeredly, especially at church. You see, people, people will go to, to a church and, and then they're all about well, you know, I, I feel like people are snubbing me and I feel like, you know, this is not the way I want it to be and things aren't the way that I would have it to be. And it's sort of like all this focus is on me, me, me. Instead of coming to church to learn more about God and want to encourage other people and minister to other people, what? if you have that attitude, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not a believer. But it means you, you just need to, to grow up. And how do we grow? Well, we grow through taking in God's word. Actually, there's a passage of scripture in, in 2 Timothy 3, where it says this way, beginning in 3.14. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. You know, he he kind of lays it out for us here. The main thing about the Bible is it answers the biggest questions in life. The biggest personal philosophical questions we, we should have. Where did I come from? What am I here for? You know, those types of questions. You know, what, what's the problem with the world and what's the answer for the world? That, that's, the Bible gives us the answers to those questions and we're going to be hearing about a lot about what's wrong with the world. It's a political season, right? So you're going to hear a lot about what's wrong with the world and what the solutions are. Rebuking, he says. That's a, I'm sorry, teaching, training. Starts with teaching. The Bible teaches us what God loves and what God hates. It teaches us about these, the answers to these great questions in life. He says rebuking, it's a strong word. It means to cut, like, like to cut out something undesirable in your life, a mole or, or cancer, to cut out. It's, it's a strong 
It's God's word that does the cutting in our lives. It confronts us in a strong way. And when we don't like what it says, that's when we have this temptation to put the Bible on the shelf and start just kind of doing it. Well, I think God is okay with this for whatever reason. Start messing up. Who tells you to stay in your marriage even though it's really, really hard? God does through the Bible. Who tells you how to treat others? Who tells you what parameters you should have on your sexuality? God does through the Bible. And not only rebuking, but correcting. That's kind of the positive side of rebuking. That's a rebuking is the don't do this. And the correcting is, but do this. And then training in righteousness. It's kind of an athletic word that that reminds us that we need to keep working at it. We need to practice. We need to put it in, in play in our lives. You know, we, we need to make this happen. You know, how do you get good at being good? How do you get to be the kind of person that, that responds the right way, even in the heat of the moment, to your spouse, to your kids? How do you, how do you get that right? How do you do the right thing just kind of instinctively? It's just what, what your first reaction is. Well, by ingesting God's word. That's what does that for us. That's exactly what we see in Jesus' life. When he's squeezed, when he's under pressure, what comes out? Scripture. At the temptation, tempted by Satan, what, he's, he's pressured, what comes out? Scripture. At the Garden of Gethsemane, he's facing the cross. He feels all that pressure. What comes out? What's his response? Scripture. He's he's on the cross in torment, tortured to death. What comes out while he's hanging there? Scripture. God, God didn't create us to leave us guessing and wondering what his will was. God created us as thinking people and he revealed himself to us. And we have his words to us in our homes, maybe in our laps right now. But what happens a lot is is we own a Bible. We even think highly of the Bible. We even put the Bible in a special place. We just don't read the Bible. We should all be in some habit of daily ingesting God's word. We should all be, you know, trying to get on a reading plan where we're focused on God's word. And if that's hard for you, because you only have the attention span of like two minutes, and then you want to flip the TV back on. just need to grow a little bit. I know how it is. This is January, so I decided some years I'll purposely read through the Bible. Anybody do that, you know? And so this was one of those years. I thought, oh, I'll read through the Bible. But I didn't get started on time. 
And then I thought, because I thought I had a re, I wanted to use a Bible that actually kind of divided it all up the lazy man's way so I could, knew exactly how much to read. Anybody do this? Anyway, so I was going to do that. Well, I couldn't find my Bible. I had one like that that I'd gone through before in other years, but I couldn't find it, which frustrated me. You know, a few days, I couldn't find that thing. I kept checking different, well, I'll check there tomorrow. And a week's gone. And then I decided, well, I'm not going to find that. I should order another one. Well, then I decided, well, rather than getting another one of those, I should get a chronological Bible and go through chronologically. You're reading all the Bible, but you're sort of reading it in a different order as the events happen. I thought, oh, that'll be cool. I've never actually read a chronological Bible all the way through. And then I thought, but I want one of those that are divided up. So then I ordered one of those, but it wasn't exactly the one I wanted. I actually meant to order another one, so I reordered it. So by the time I get started, you know, it's like, it's like the 12th of January. I'm 12 days behind already. You know, so you need, you know, so I need to get caught up. But the point is, I don't know why I told you all that, but the point is, is even when we don't get started, it doesn't go exactly the way we think it's going to go. We, we still need to do it. And that's why it's so important to also to come to church. And that's another way to, to get the Bible poured into your life. And, and our Wednesday night uh, stuff we have going on, same thing, the classes we have there. And also, you know, our adult classes. We, we're responsible to take in God's word. The Bible is God speaking to us. And so if you don't have a plan yet, I invite you to join in on my late start on a, on a chronological or read through the Bible kind of a plan and we can hold each other accountable. I just need to get caught up. Let's stand together for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. What, what a precious, precious gift that we so often just take for granted. We have a high view of the Bible. It's just so easy to not read the Bible, your word spoken to us. God, help us to be consistent with that. Help us to, to listen to the Bible Maybe get it on tape or, or just whatever it takes to read it, just whatever it is to get daily doses of your word in our lives. And God, as your word says, let us not neglect assembling ourselves together, but that we can build each other up, remind each other of what the Bible says to point each other to you. God, thanks for loving us. Or thanks that we could come together at Grace Community. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here. You're dismissed. Have a great day. Yes.